Hey, this is Pastor Chris. Welcome to worship. I am praying that God speaks to you today in a way that helps you overcome the struggles that you face. You're listening to this because other people are giving to Grace Atumwa. If you have never given to Grace, but you want others to experience hope, you can do so today at graceatumwa.org give. I hope to see you this week in our Facebook group where we dive in deeper together. If you haven't joined in yet, go to Facebook and search for Grace Atumwa Church Online. Now, prepare your heart for today's message. God wants to speak to you. Have you ever played the comparison game? You know what I'm talking about? That game where you're comparing yourself to someone else or everybody else. For me, I think of the time that I was in seventh grade life science class and I was aiming for the top grade in the class and I was comparing myself. For some reason, they put a chart of everyone's grades up on the wall and we knew exactly how everyone was doing and I was sure I was going to have the top grade in the class until... I'm not going to tell you her name, but I still remember she beat me. And it's not like, it's not like I wasn't trying. I had like 106% in the class. I was doing every extra credit project I could, but she got 108%. And I remember the day I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to win anyway. And I stopped trying and I got an F on the next two quizzes. The comparison game is a funny thing because really, nobody wins. You could even call it a comparison trap. And it's funny to think back to the times when we were kids and we compared ourselves on different things. Who can run the fastest? Who's the smartest? I knew I wasn't going to be the fastest runner or the furthest thrower. That's why I was concerned about grades. And for you, you know what it was for you as a kid, but it doesn't go away when we grow up. In today's scripture that we're looking at from John chapter 21, it's the last section in the whole gospel of John, verses 15 to 25. In this scripture, listen for the comparison trap. I'll read it for you here. When they had finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, Simon replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time. Do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Simon said to him, feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the one who had leaned against Jesus at the meal and asked him, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw this disciple, he said to Jesus, 
Lord, what about him? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain until I come, what difference does that make to you? You must follow me. Therefore, the word spread among the brothers and sisters that the disciple wouldn't die. However, Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what difference does that make to you? This is the disciple who testifies concerning these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If all of them were recorded, I imagine the world itself wouldn't have enough room for all the scrolls that would be written. Did you hear the comparison trap? Peter, who said previously, even if all of these other cowardly disciples abandon you, Jesus, I'll be right by your side to the end. He said this just a few weeks before this moment we read. And he said this just the night before. Peter walks out on Jesus, acts as if he doesn't even know him. Did you hear the comparison trap that Peter was making? Did you hear it when Jesus and Peter and the other disciples finished eating? Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? And Simon replies, Lord, you know I love you. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to Peter here, do you really think you love me more than these other disciples do? Are you really so confident in yourself? And then when Peter says, you know I love you, Jesus says, don't even worry about the comparison. Don't even worry about the comparison game. Just feed my lambs. Just do what I've called you to do. And to make the point really clear, he asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He doesn't even include the comparison there. And Simon replies, yes, you know, I love you. And he asks him the third time as well. And the, the second time he says, take care of my sheep. And the third time he says, feed my sheep. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, I want you to trade the comparison for a concern for the people I've put in your care. Exchange it. Turn it in. No more do I want you to play the comparison game. Trade the comparison game for a concern for the people I've put in your care. So I'm going to ask you, who are the people that Jesus has put in your care? You might be immediately thinking about your family. And whatever that looks like for you, I know families come in all sorts of forms. But the people around you. So often we get so concerned about the comparison game that we forget the people God's put in our care. Are you taking care of them? Are you showing them love? Jesus says, tend my lambs. And you know, it's not just your immediate family. It's not just those people in your care. Also, who are the spiritual lambs that God's put in your life? And I'm not claiming that you're an expert in the faith, that you've said, I've reached that amazing level that I'm ready to take care of spiritual infants, spiritual lambs 
of Jesus. People who don't know anything about who Jesus is. I'm not saying that you know everything. But I'm saying, you and I both, myself included here, we spend so much of our energy comparing ourselves to others in so many ways. When Jesus is saying, I have people that I want you to take care of, and do you see them? When I think of who these spiritual lambs are in our care, I find it really helpful to use a Frank list. F-R-A-N-C. I think of these people as people that Jesus has put into my care. How am I supporting them in their journey? Especially the people who do not know Jesus yet. I think of the, the F, the friends. Who are my friends? Who Jesus has built this connection. I, I believe in God's providence. And sometimes there's relationships that God puts there and there for a reason. And I know it's controversial to talk about faith, and yet if we never do, how are we really joining Jesus in his mission? Because Jesus wants everyone to know how much he loves them. So I'm asking, how is it that you're loving your friends in a way that reveals who Jesus is? At least, how are you praying for them? It's on your frank list. Your friends, the second is your relatives. They can be in your immediate family. They can be outside of your immediate family. Your relatives who don't know Jesus very well yet, how are you praying for them? And what about your acquaintances? I'm not saying run up and start conversations with strangers. Some of you find that really easy. Some of you find it easier to do that than the people you know. And some of you find it really difficult. But what I'm saying is the person who serves you coffee at your favorite coffee shop, the server at your favorite restaurant, do you know their name? Do you ask, how are you doing? And if they say something's going difficultly for them, they're having a, a struggle, do you have the courage to say, I don't know if you're religious or not, but do you mind if I pray for you? And then actually pray for them? Your frank list is your friends, your relatives, your acquaintances, also your neighbors the inn, your neighbors, the people next door to you, the people across the street from you, the people on the block behind you, whatever your neighborhood looks like, those immediate, the closest six to eight houses around you, do you know their names? Are you praying for them? Jesus says, stop the comparison game. Instead, what I want you to do is feed my lambs, take care of them. And you know, it's funny because of all of these different people that we've mentioned so far, friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, I'll give you the next one, co-workers, we compare ourselves to them. Sometimes we get compared and we say, oh, you know what, I'm a little better than them at this. And sometimes we compare ourselves to the negative and we say, I'm not as blank as they are. Wealthy, smart, organized, talented, skinny, whatever your comparison trap is, we spend our energy comparing ourselves to them rather than doing what Jesus says, take care of these ones of mine. What would it mean to pray for them? 
what would it mean to listen to them in a way that invites them to tell you their story, where you say, hey, how you're going or how you doing? And they believe it, that you actually want to know. Because these are Jesus's lambs. And you do not need to be an expert on all things spiritual to feed the lambs of Jesus around you. You just need to know where the food is. And I'll just tell you, the spiritual food, it comes from Jesus. Feed the lambs. You know, this isn't easy. Following Jesus costs you something. Look at this next passage here, where Jesus just got done telling Peter, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says, I assure you, Peter, that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and you walked around wherever you wanted, in a sense of freedom. But when you grow old, Peter, this is the way you're going to die. You're going to stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you to where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to show what kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. In other words, how Jesus was going to die literally on the cross like Jesus did. Except Peter, when he got older, the story goes, he didn't feel worthy to be killed like Jesus did. He insists that he be crucified upside down. After Jesus said these things to Peter, Jesus looked at him and he said, follow me. See, following Jesus actually sets us free from the comparison trap because it reminds us that our earthly comfort and the prestige that we're often running after, a reputation we're trying to take care of, our talents we're trying to acquire, our possessions we're trying to fill up our space with, that those are actually not the primary goals. The primary goal is to follow Jesus. Well, Peter is so dense, he just doesn't get it. So he turns around and he sees the disciple who Jesus loves like a brother following them. And it's, it's the same disciple that had leaned up against Jesus at the meal and said, Lord, which one's going to betray you? And when Peter saw this disciple, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? You just told me I'm going to die on the cross here. That sounds pretty painful. It's also a pretty high honor to be killed the way you are. Tell me about what's going to happen to him. And it's kind of funny. You kind of see this interesting back and forth at the last half of this gospel. When this disciple appears after Lazarus was raised from the dead. You see this back and forth about this disciple who Jesus loves is sitting right next to Jesus and peers on the side of the disciple. And on the way to the empty tomb, they're running back and forth, and one gets there first. There seems to be something going on there. And Peter turns around and says, Jesus, what about him? What is this going to cost him? What's it going to look like when he dies? And Jesus responds and says, if I want him to remain until I come, what difference does that make to you? You must follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, Kind of one of those slap your hand over the head kind of things. Stop the comparison game, Peter. Just stop it. I want more for you than this. 
as someone reading scripture, and there's this mysterious disciple, the one who Jesus loves like a brother, I, I can't help but open up the scriptures to say, now who is he? Which disciple is this? Well, take a look at what this passage says. Right after Peter says this and Jesus responds, we read this side note. Therefore, the word spread among the brothers and sisters, that's the people who followed Jesus in the early church, they called themselves brothers and sisters, that this disciple wouldn't die. This disciple who Jesus loves like a brother. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what difference does that make for you? In other words, this disciple who was staying behind when Peter was talking to Jesus, the story got around of Jesus saying, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus saying, what if I want him to remain until I come back someday? Why do you care? And people started saying, is that what's going to happen? You're not going to die? This is the same disciple who we've seen over and over and over again. So who is it? Who is this disciple? I believe all of, these, all of the stories we see about this disciple throughout the Gospel of John points to Lazarus. This disciple doesn't show up until the moment that Lazarus is raised from the dead. And at the moment that Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb, everyone says, look how much he loved him. And even before that, when Jesus is told, hey, Lazarus is going to die. Lazarus is sick. You should come and see him. The message isn't Lazarus. It's the one who you love like a brother. So it seems to point that way. That's the same disciple who Jesus raised from the dead. It's the same disciple who sat at Jesus' side at the Last Supper. It's the same disciple who knew the area well enough, because Lazarus just lived nearby, that he could get Peter into the courtyard the night of Jesus' trial. It's the same disciple who ran to the tomb first and knew that Jesus was raised from the dead because he saw the grave clothes tied around and saw there's no way this person could have been set free if it wasn't a miracle. Now, it's okay to disagree with me on this. You can still be a Christian. This is not an essential core of the Christian faith. But as I look at this, I think it's got to be Lazarus. Who else would it make more sense that when there's this rumor going around, he's not going to die? Well, that makes some sense because if Jesus raised you from the dead, maybe then you'll live forever. And the scripture goes on and tells us this disciple who Jesus loves, like a brother, is actually the one who wrote these things down. In this side note, the author of this, this gospel says, this one who Jesus loves is the one who testifies concerning these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So whoever this disciple is who Jesus loves like a brother, that person is the source of this book. Now, some of you have asked me over the course of this series, we're wrapping up the Gospel of John. Some of you have asked me, how did this gospel come to be called the Gospel of John? If it was written by Lazarus, this if it's Lazarus' story, how, why are we calling it John? So let me tell you. I'm going to tell you here's my belief. 
And I'm not pulling it out of thin air. I'm pulling it from biblical scholars like Ben Witherington III and many others. How did it come to become the Gospel of John? Well, we, if we want to know what gospel, who wrote the gospel, we should look at the context itself. We've looked at that. The gospel never says it was written by John. It doesn't give us the name of the author. It only says it was written by the disciple who Jesus loves. Well, quickly after it was written, the gospel of John came to be considered a faithful and God-inspired account of the life of Jesus. Churches were passing copies of it around because they wanted to spread this. They saw that it really did seem to come from an eyewitness of Jesus, and they were confident of it. The title, though, the title, Gospel According to John, well, that was added about 100 years after it was written. About 100 years after it was written, some church leaders thought it was important to say definitively who wrote the gospel down. They already knew it was authoritative. They knew it was authoritative because the Holy Spirit was speaking to them as they read it. They knew it was authoritative because they received it from people who said they re- that it was written by an eyewitness of Jesus. And, you know, they found some evidence in the writings of one of the early church fathers, Papias, who knew the author personally. And he knew that it had been passed down to the church by someone named John. Now hear me out here. There are two Johns that were significant candidates there. There's John the Apostle, one of the 12 disciples, the fisherman from Galilee, who didn't have that much experience around Judea at the time, to actually let Peter into the courtyard where Jesus was arrested and on trial. And then there's the other John, John the Elder. And perhaps too hastily, there's a leader of the early church named Irenaeus who claimed that must be John, the son, of Zebedee, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, one of the twelve apostles. And that could make sense because of the way that the apostle John was an eyewitness for a lot of Jesus' ministry. But there's something that Irenaeus didn't recognize, he didn't realize when he said this, about a hundred years after the gospel was written, was that Papias also wrote down that the apostle John was martyred long before this gospel was written. Even more strangely, the gospel of John actually leaves out all of the important stories that focus on the Apostle John's experience with Jesus. If it's an account of John's experience with Jesus, you would think it would tell the story of how Jesus called John to follow him. How Jesus invited John to go with Jesus into the room where Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. That story's not in this gospel. Or the moment of Jesus' transfiguration where only James and John and Peter were there. You would think it would include those first-hand experiences that we know John was one of the few that had that experience. But instead, we see over and over the entire second half of the gospel is about a different person's first-hand experience with Jesus. It looks as if there's this disciple who Jesus loves like a brother who wasn't with them on a lot of the other other earlier accounts because he lived in Bethany, near Jerusalem. But when 
Jesus came and raised him from the dead. He followed Jesus for that last week of Jesus's life. And he was there for all of those moments and he was writing them down. Now this book doesn't tell us the name of the author directly, but only that it was written by the disciple who Jesus loves. In this Gospel of John, Jesus loves everyone, but there's that one person that we see identified. They're the disciple who Jesus loves like a brother, Lazarus. And if that's true, what seems likely is that this John the Elder is the person who is one of those followers of Jesus after Jesus had already died, had already risen from the dead, but was a follower of Jesus like you and me who'd heard the stories. And he wrote down Lazarus's testimony on his behalf. And I'll tell you, in the first century, it was very common that the author of it, the person who was, was told is the one who writes it down, they had someone else writing it down with their own hand who had, who had more of an ability to write. That's part of the reason why we see some of the similar styles in writing in the Gospel of John is what we see in the other works that have, may have ascribed to John the Elder in the, in the Gospels. Now this is all an interesting side note, but let's not miss the point. The point is this, in the comparison game, Jesus told Peter, if I want this disciple who I love like a brother, to remain until I come. What difference does that make to you? You know what your role is? Follow me. Follow me. And that's the call for all of us, to follow Jesus. That's really what it's about. If you want to escape the comparison trap, you have to recognize the comparison trap for what it is. It's a distraction. It's a distraction. When you look at all of the different things that you compare between yourself and other people, and you say, if only I was like this, or good, at least I'm better than they are at that. I know we have more civilized ways of saying it than toddlers do. Toddlers say, ha ha, I win! But let's not deny that it's just the same thing with more grown-up words. And Jesus says it's all a distraction for you. Trade the comparison for a concern. For the people Jesus has put in your care, your family, your frank list, your friends, your relatives, your acquaintances, your neighbors, your co-workers. Follow Jesus.